Hello and welcome to Net Zero by Current, where we bring you some of the latest Net Zero stories from the UK and Ireland. My name is George and I am joined today by my colleague Lena. Hello, it's been a busy fortnight for the renewable industry, so we'll jump straight into our first new snapshot. So a new policy brief by Oxford University's Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment has revealed that Britain could solely be powered by wind and solar power. Published towards the end of September, the brief anticipated that offshore wind alone could produce over 2,000 terawatt hours a year. This surpasses even the highest energy demand forecast for Britain in 2050, which currently sits at 1,500 terawatt hours a year. Moving on to our second story, the Secretary of State for Energy Security and Net Zero, Claire Coutinho, has deemed the Morocco-UK power project as a nationally significant infrastructure project, also known as an NSIP. Headed by developer Exalinx, the project aims to connect the UK to a 10.5 gigawatt facility of solar and wind farms in Morocco using subsea high-voltage direct current cables, also known as HVDC. Now, NSIPs are major infrastructure projects that require development consent to be granted by the relevant Secretary of State through a development consent order, also known as a DCO. They follow a strict legal process with fixed time scales set out in the Planning Act 2008, which requires projects to carry out public consultation and undergo an independent examination. And in our third story, National Grid Electricity Distribution has introduced short-term trades to grow domestic participation in its flexibility services this winter. The short-term trades will be procured on a weekly basis, with the availability and price both agreed each week before delivery. National Grid said it hopes that the short-term trades will open up the flexibility market to over 300 million households within its remit. And finally, I'm delighted to say that we will have an exclusive from this year's EV World Congress, which took place earlier this week. Current was the event's editorial partner, and Lena and I attended the event and had access to the multitude of expert panel discussions throughout the two days. Formula E's sustainability director, Julia Pallet, opened the event discussing how motorsport can be used as a tool to fight climate change. Topics from across the two days also included the likes of vehicle-to-grid technologies, flexibility, destination charging, battery degradation, and more. In a Net Zero by Current exclusive, Lena and I will take you through some of the most interesting panel discussions from this year's Congress in the final part of this podcast, so please do stay tuned. And that was our news snapshot for today, and I wanted to jump straight into a discussion about our first story. So, from my understanding, a school within Oxford University has found that wind and solar can provide significantly more energy than the highest energy demand forecast for 2050. That's right. So using conservative estimations of the practical potential for electricity generation in Britain, the University of Oxford found that the combined generation from solar and wind would sit at 2,896 terawatt hours per year, which is almost double the maximum estimated energy consumption for Britain in 2050. And that's really interesting because this is almost 10 times the current electricity demand in Britain, which is around 299 terawatt hours a year which really does put the potential for renewables to power Britain into perspective. But I also think there's an important question of asking where this electricity is actually going to come from. Well, according to the policy brief, offshore wind would produce the bulk of the energy at 73%, which is just over 2,000 terawatt hours a year, whilst onshore wind would contribute around 7%, which is just over 200 terawatt hours a year. On top of that, utility scale and rooftop solar 
will contribute a combined 27%, producing just over 500 terawatt hours and 25 terawatt hours a year, respectively. Now, despite this exciting prospect, some people may actually be worried about how much British land would have to be used to receive these benefits. Well, the policy brief did address this, and they conservatively estimated that utility-scale solar would be located on roughly 2% of Britain's land, and rooftop solar would take up just over 8% of Britain's rooftops. For wind, the brief estimated that only 0.05% of British land would be physically covered by turbine infrastructure. Now, to put this into perspective, the brief did compare it to the land that is currently used for mining and quarrying, which sits at 0.9%. And in keeping with the positive news within the renewable sector over the past fortnight, I just wanted to quickly note that Renewable UK revealed that the global floating offshore wind project pipeline has actually increased by 32% from 185 gigawatts of capacity in 2022 to 244 gigawatts this year. Right, and this came at a similar time to the Department of Energy Security and Net Zero's Energy Trends for 2022, which was released at the beginning of this month. And that showed that the UK's overall renewable generation capacity grew by 7.7% to 53.5 gigawatts last year, which just shows that we're moving ever closer to that net zero goal. Absolutely. Now, if we move forward to our second story, which focuses on Exlink's uh, highly anticipated Morocco-UK power project, which has been deemed an NSIP. To give listeners some background, it was announced in September 2021 that new wind and solar projects being developed in Morocco were to be linked with Britain via four 3,800km HVDC subsea cables. Known as the Morocco-UK power project, it is set to have a total capacity of 10.5 gigawatts and a capability of exporting 3.6 gigawatts from an average of 20 plus hours a day. The project site is also set to feature a 5 gigawatt, 20 gigawatt hour battery facility to help provide a near constant source of flexible energy. Now, upon completion in 2030, the project could supply 8% of the UK's electricity needs. And I do want to note that the project will actually connect to the UK in Devon. But what's the significance of the project becoming an NSIP? Now, becoming an NSIP essentially shows the weight and the scale of the project and the potential impact that it could have, not only on the UK energy system, but the UK's infrastructure as a whole. So essentially becoming an NSIP changes the way that you are granted consent for development. A development consent order, a DCO, which is granted by the Secretary of State for Energy Security and Net Zero, automatically removes the need to obtain several separate consents including planning permission, and it's designed to be a much quicker process than applying for these individually. Thanks, George. So we've discussed supply. Now let's move on to a story that focuses on how we manage our electricity. And that comes from our third story, which is from the National Grid, where they've announced it has introduced short-term trades to help grow domestic participation in its flexibility services. Yes. Now you explained earlier what short-term trading flexibility will mean. These trades will be procured on a weekly basis, availability and price agreed a week before delivery. Mm -hmm. But can you actually explain how this will help UK households actually get involved and engage in flexibility services? So Helen Sorden, the flexibility commercial lead at National Grid, explained that as short-term trades will be procured more frequently, there will then be more opportunities for new flexible assets to enter the market as soon as they become eligible. 
Right. And domestic flexibility assets can include EVs, which can be used for smart charging or exporting back to the grid, or home energy storage batteries, right? Right. And the National Grid anticipates that reducing the amount of time between procurement and delivery will lead to a greater level of successful participation from intermittent assets, such as EVs, that are unable to commit to delivery over longer timescales. Right. And I'm just looking over our actual coverage now, and it does seem that the National Grid estimated that over 3 million customers are estimated to live in areas with operating flexibility services. So... If those households containing flexibility assets within this remit take part in flexibility services, they'll be able to receive financial rewards. Well, there'll definitely be some sort of reward or incentive for them to participate in flexibility. So the average flexibility provider is set to typically receive £3,000 per megawatt hour a year for contributing in the National Grid's flexibility services. Now, these savings are usually passed on to customers in one way or the other. And actually, the National Grid believes that this could increase due to a recent rise in maximum prices. So this will boost flexibility service provider earnings by up to £18,000 per megawatt hour a year. Now, that's very interesting. And building on that, I do believe that there will also be savings for the electricity network itself. As I do remember the National Grid saying that flexibility services have already deferred £147 million of network reinforcement. And I just wanted to make a quick note if there are any listeners wishing to get involved, any suppliers and aggregators wishing to become flexibility service providers will need to be registered to the National Grid's Market Gateway platform. Brilliant. Thank you, Lena. And now to move on to our Net Zero by Current exclusive. As mentioned earlier, the EV World Congress event took place in London this week with former EAST Julia Palais opening the event stating that we need a solution to fight climate change. And motorsport is a fantastic tool. Palais also noted that there is a lag time for charging technology from the competition to reach consumers, with this tending to take around four years. A good example of this that Palais highlighted was that EV infrastructure will be supported this year via ultra-fast charging, and this could help heal anxiety around charging times, a factor often recognised as one of the biggest obstacles for potential EV adopters. Right, so from what Palais was saying, the super fast EV charging that they use at the moment for their Formula E races, there's going to be a lag time before that's available to the consumer market, right? Yes. Brilliant. And just to move on to a discussion that I really wanted to bring to attention, it was the Navigating the Secondhand EV Market panel, which was moderated by Claire Miller, board advisor at Octopus EV, and included Mark Palmer from Auto Trader. Abdul Chowdhury from the Office for Zero Emission Vehicles, or OZEV, and Lauren Pammer from the Green Finance Institute. Now, I'm very glad that you actually brought that one up because I do remember Claire opening that panel discussion, discussion with a fantastic question, really. And that was, will we ever be able to buy an old £500 EV banger? And that sparked a really interesting conversation between the panellists. So each panellist did agree that a £500 used EV is unlikely to be viable and there are various reasons for this but I think the one that Lauren Pammer noted was that the value that is left in an EV battery will always be worth more than £500 be that to a battery recycler or for energy storage. But this isn't a cause for despair and the panel were quick to note that the upfront cost of EVs is going down. For example if you remember Tesla decreased its prices by £5,000 in January and that caused used prices to fall. And there are also ever-increasing finance opportunities that can help with the upfront costs of EVs. 
Although an interesting thing the panel noted, noted was that there seems that not as many people that could be utilising these financing options for EVs are doing so. So Mark Palmer said that according to Auto Traders data, 18 to 35 year olds often don't see financing as debt, but do worry about whether they will be accepted. Whereas drivers in the older age bracket, who stereotypically are more likely to have the money for an EV, don't trust the product and don't like using finance. Yeah, and I think I do remember Abdul Chowdhury, he did note that though there is a lack of consumer information, and it's one of the one of the big four key areas the UK government is working to address as we move from a market to early adopters to mass transition. So hopefully we'll be seeing some progress towards this by next year. Claire Miller also closed with a great question which she addressed to Mark, and she asked from his experience, what was the cheapest second-hand EV in the market at the moment? To which he replied, a Nissan Leaf. A great little car that as well. Now, rounding off our coverage of EV World Congress was an excellent discussion on destination charging. Now, one particular quote that stood out to me personally came from Nicholas Parks, who's the head of Destination EV Europe at Shell Recharge. And he said that their research shows that EV drivers choose locations and places to go to based on the charging offering that is there, which I think is a really, really interesting point. Yeah, and that touches on some a topic that was pretty much brought up throughout the two days of the Congress, where it's not so much how many charges there are, but it being the right charger at the right time in the right place. So, for example, a charge point win an office space, you're not going to need super fast charging there if you're parked there for at least five hours, say. Whereas if you're at a service station, that's when the fast charging really comes in handy because no one's going to be wanting to be sat there for too long. There are also questions of accessibility that come into play. Absolutely. And those are really good points that you made there as well. And one made by Parks as well, one he highlighted in the panel discussion, I should say, about how the use of efficient EV charges at destinations could be a revelation for businesses. And this could primarily impact shops. So he said that drivers will also spend more in the shops too. There's a real opportunity to attract people to the sites by having this accessible EV charging. And it's also worth noting that this could incentivize the installation of EV chargers at several destinations. And this includes hotels, shops, universities, and and many more that I've probably missed. Now, there is also a need to create a seamless experience, like you said, about accessibility for drivers to chain to charge their EVs. Sorry, Parks noted. Yep, and I'm sure we're going to be hearing more about that in the coming months and well into next year. Absolutely. And that was this week's Net Zero Roundup. All the stories heard today can be read in more detail by following the links to the current website in the episode description. Just a quick note to to say that both George and I will be attending the Solar and Storage Live in Birmingham next week, and it'll be great for any listeners wanting to chat to come and meet us by Solar Media Stand. Absolutely. And thanks for listening, everyone. And we will see you next time. Goodbye.